0: This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM. Magnuson Park.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard. And get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host,
0: Felix Bonnell.
1: Good
0: evening and welcome to another episode of Cascade of History. I am Felix Bunnell. We're coming to you live from the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station site now of Magnuson Park here on the historic shores of Lake Washington in North Seattle. We're on FM 101.1 FM uh, throughout much of North Seattle and even over to my hometown, my original hometown of Kirkland, Washington. We're streaming live everywhere at Space101FM.org. That's a great website, too. If you get a chance to go to space101fm.org, there's all kinds of other information there about the other programs on this terrific community station. It's all volunteer. It's supported by contributions. It's people playing music like that history's music show that we just heard. People who really care about what they do and bring their level of passion and, and interest to stuff that you don't normally hear on maybe commercial radio or you can't find just on any other uh, any other audio platform. So it's we're, we're uniquely part of the Northwest, and I'm glad to be here. I think this is the tenth episode of Cascade of History. We've been doing this since early September. We talk to people from all over the Northwest: Washington, Idaho, Oregon, British Columbia. The premise is that's the old Oregon Country when when uh, non-natives first came out here and started to make changes back in the early 19th century, late 18th century, even. This was the old Oregon country, and it's still a region, uh, especially historically speaking. So it's, it's uh, great to have this opportunity to do this stuff live every, uh, every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific. If you have questions for me, you can send an email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. I'd love to get suggestions for guests, questions about the show, or questions you might have about Northwest history. We've got a busy show tonight, lots of guests. Um, in a moment, we're going to introduce our first guest, a guy named Dan Wall. This past uh, Friday was Veterans Day. It's Armistice Day, Remembrance Day up in Canada. Let me honor our veterans. And Dan is a Navy veteran, and he was here at Sandpoint Naval Air Station more than 50 years ago. And that that late history of the base is not as well known as some of the history from the 1920s and 1930s. So we'll spend some time talking with Dan about that. Our roving correspondent, Ken Zick, is going to join us. He's out at Memorial Stadium, Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, which is marking its 75th anniversary later this month it has uh, It's an endangered property. It's been threatened. It's been sort of poorly maintained for a long time. And it was originally built and dedicated in honor of Seattle School District alums who died in World War II. Um, so Ken will be out there for an update on what's going on at the Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. And then we'll talk to Allison Brooks, who's the uh, Historic Preservation Officer for the state of Washington. And she's closely involved with all kinds of preservation efforts all around the state. And we'll find out what's going on with uh, preservation here in Washington and maybe how it compares to other parts of the Northwest or other parts of the country. And then our old friend Ding Dong the History Clown will stop by with one of his stories. So it's a, it's a busy show. Oh, and if we get to it, we'll have, uh, we'll have the most recent episode, the next episode in our End of the Oregon Trail audio. The 1946 series produced by the Olympia Beer Company uh, with uh, the special narrator. William Conrad. Anyway, so we have a lot to get to. So I want to see if I can get Dan on the phone here. Let's see. Let's see. Dan, can you hear me? Hang on one second here. Dan, Dan Wall, are you there? Oh, I hear you good now. Ah, wonderful. Hey, thank you so much for taking time on a Sunday night to share a little bit of your story and a little bit of the history of the, uh, the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station. Now, you sent me some notes. You said that um, you were in the Navy from 1963 to 1985. So, number one, thank you for your service. And your, uh, you said your final rank was Master Chief Petty Officer, but yes. you, but you were here at Sandpoint back in the late 1960s. Right. That's correct. Now, where are you from originally? I'm well, from San Francisco. Okay. So, what was it like to get to Seattle in 1968? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I was single at the time. I was driving uh, from n a s Alameda where I had joined the Navy, and uh, that was being transferred up to Seattle. I was a p five at the time, and uh, I gotta tell you, the drive was interesting, uh, first time out cross country and uh, driving up and i I remember something distinctly going north, and that was crossing the Columbia River onto Washington. and all of a sudden, it was a little cool outside, slight misty, but all I could smell was alder, huh. which I'd, I'd never sm- smelled it before. Wow. And there was this woodsy smell, and I'm driving up Highway 5, getting up towards Seattle. And, and, and it was just inundating me, and I was like, wow, where the heck am I? <laughs> <laughs> Been driving all day, 15 hours, and finally get up to uh, 85th uh, Street there and started. Instead of taking 45th, I got up to 85th and <laughs> went over to the top of the hill back down to Sandpoint Way, the hard way. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and uh,
2: got into the main gate, which was impressive in itself because it's got this brick facade on it, and I thought, well, wow, this is pretty cool. Drove through the main gate. Uh, the, guy at the gate says the uh, barracks are just down to the right, go up to 62nd Street there, and You'll see on your right, there's this whole string of barracks. Go up there and report in. So, Wow. Uh, that that was a cool evening. Uh, got checked into the barracks. Again, just an E5 young guy. And the uh, next thing I know, one of the guys in the barracks says, oh, there's a club downstairs in the basement. I'm saying, what? <laughs> <laughs> a club. <laughs> sure enough, there was an elected club called the Brass Rail down in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go
0: ahead. So wait. So so, did you go down to the brass rail that very first night you were here?
2: Very first. Night.
0: <laughs> and what what was he? What was being offered in terms of entertainment or refreshments in the brass rail?
2: Well, let's see. There was a pool table. It was an all enlisted club uh, for the lower rated ones from say E four and below, but a lot of the E fives and E sixes would end up there because they lived in the barracks. We were all. Barracks rats. So we go down, have a few beers, play a little ac Doocy, and then maybe a little liar's poker, and everybody tell tall tales, and <laughs> end up back in bed late that night.
0: Just another day at the office. <laughs> another day
2: at the office. Yes.
0: So, what now? What possessed you to join the Navy in the first place? What drew you to joining the Navy, and what what was it that? Why did you pick the Navy in particular? Well, my
2: dad would, had been in the Navy. He was in the Pueblo call up. Uh, he was over in Vietnam, and he was back, and. Wow, I was in college, uh, just out of high school, over in San Francisco, and I, I I knew that the army was after me for the draft. So I just talked to my dad and I said, you, "You think maybe I ought to get into the navy, navy reserve to start with?" And he says, "Yeah, might be a good idea. You're going to be in a trench in Vietnam." So oh, geez. <laughs> well, either way you look at it, being on the carriers like being in a trench in Vietnam. Almost, so. <laughs> I went ahead and joined the Navy and got assigned to a destroyer over in Treasure Island here in California and my dad was just back from Vietnam and he was a chief petty officer on that same destroyer I was assigned to so we both served on the same ship for about a year and a half until I'd had enough of serving with my father on the same Wow ship.
0: you guys are like Ken Griffey Jr and senior I got to tell you it was it was just
2: like that <laughs> And so I moved to the ship next to us, and uh, I had a good time there. Then I left and went over to Alameda Naval Air Station and got into the air side of the Navy. That's what brought me up to uh, Seattle. Okay.
0: So what was your job up here at San Point? Well, I'm an aviation electrician's mate, so I was troubleshooting
2: all the aircraft on the base. We had quite a number of aircraft, different aircraft on the base. You had C-54s and C-2s, and you had S-2Fs, and you had H-34 helicopters. The Marines had the flying boxcars, C-119s, and, and it was just a, a real gaggle of aircraft. Old aircraft cast me off from the regular Navy. Uh, but the reserves, they were primarily for the reserves to train on. And I was part of the active duty force that trained the reserves,
1: uh,
0: along,
2: with it, along with about another 499 people, including officers that trained the pilots.
0: So And what- our job... Go ahead. I was going to go back to the, the before you, I, I want to hear what your job was, but the, the aircraft, you mentioned the C-54, you mentioned some of those other, can you give me just a little more description of what each of those kinds of aircraft were that were here? Because I, I know there's some research that's going on. They're trying to identify every single type of plane that ever was based here and used here for some reason. I'd just love to know a little bit more about each of those planes. Just a quick little thumbnail of what each of those planes were. Well,
2: one was the C-47. We called it the tail dragger. That was the one that had two wheels and a tail wheel. Okay. It, if you've seen those in history. And then there was the C 54. It was a Douglas aircraft. Okay. It was a four engine prop driven plane that carried cargo and passengers, so Got just it. depending how you configure it. The SP 2H was a patrol bomber for uh, anti submarine warfare. Huh. So it could carry uh, torpedoes, it could carry uh, rockets, it could uh, have big searchlights on the wingtips uh, with wing tanks and uh, you'd get out there for 12-hour flights over the ocean, nothing there, just looking for subs, dropping sauna boys, listening for the uh, for the props of the subs that would try to sneak up on the coast or or somewhere where we were trolling out in the Pacific or the Atlantic. Huh. We, had, we also had uh, a, a group of S2Fs. Now, these were, uh, we called them STOOFs. They were two-engine prop-driven planes that were carrier-based, but we had them on shore at Sandpoint, and it was teaching pilots how to use those planes for anti-submarine protection for carriers and carrier air groups. Wow. Whereas you'd have a carrier with a number of destroyers, everybody leading the group, but these S-2Fs could get out there and do the same thing the big SPF, SP-2Hs could do, but more where the carrier was operating in the middle of the ocean. So.
0: The the runway that's here and the size of the base, I mean, I assume you, you've been around and seen different bases. How does Sandpoint fit in? Is it sort of on the smaller size of things in terms of the acreage and the runway length, or is it kind of just standard issue, or how would you fit it into the constellation of other bases? Tiny. It's tiny? Okay, okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I had an episode once, when I was, I was an air crewman, too, so I used to fly in the SP-2Hs, and I can remember one time, one of our lieutenants says, I've got a problem with this generator, and your guys are always telling me there's nothing wrong with it. You. You're going with me. <laughs> so, I went out, got on the plane, and the, the, the flight the flight guy in the center seat was there, pilot, co-pilot, and I'm sitting in the seat behind him. And So we take off out of Sand Point. Sand Point had a 5,000-foot runway. So we'd, by the time we'd get a roll going, we'd probably get off at about 4,200 feet. <laughs> and just crossing the rocks at the end of the runway on top of the lake as we're heading out towards Ken uh, up in the, uh, up in the north part of the lake. And we'd get out and fly around. And then he said, okay, it always drops off when we land. So here we are, we're making our approach. And finally the pilot, the friend of mine, he calls back and says, Wall, I want you up here right with me right now. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh boy. So I get up there behind him and we're coming in for approach, and if you've ever come into Sand Point, you're over water, and all you see is this little strip 5,000 feet long. It's raining. We're, we're already in the rain. The wiper's going on the plane. We're coming in low just across the threshold where the water and the, and the land meets. And you can feel the plane rise ever so slightly, and as we're going down the runway, it's still flying, (laughs) almost still flying, and it's still flying about about twenty seven hundred feet, almost three thousand feet. He touches down, he puts on the binders. We're rolling towards the end where we can see the rocks and the lake, (laughs) and he ground loops the plane. He stomps on one brake and ground loops it. Complete turn, stopped right at the end <laughs> of the runway, just before the rocks. Yeah. So when I say the the, the, the place was tiny, <laughs> yes, it was tiny.
0: So the ground—that's why he like, does like a 180 by pulling on one of the brakes, so it spins around and points Absolutely. the other way and stops. Absolutely,
2: wow. that's great. And for a big plane like that, I think we were pretty lucky. But it was a it was a funny story at the club that night.
0: I bet. Down at the brass rail? <laughs> uh,
2: no, at the do the Club this time. We had a couple of clubs on the base. We had the Brass Rail, and we had the Acey-Ducey's for E5s and E6s. Or and, or it was across the street at the in-crowd, the uh, tavern right across from the main, great, main now, gate.
0: Now, tell me about that, because I don't think the building... I think the building is no longer there where the in-crowd was, but what, what was that place <laughs> like, right across the street from the base? It must have been a real it, hot spot.
2: It was a hot place, i got to tell you. <laughs> for, for a single guy, it was just fun to leave the base and... It, Experiment out. It was just crazy. It was a, a great place, had great music. You uh, couldn't take the drink from the bar. Old Victorian laws, the ABC laws for Washington State.
0: Oh. So if
2: you wanted to leave the bar with a drink and go sit at a table, you had to have the waitress take the drink over to the table for you. Wow. And coming out of California, that didn't work very well for me, but I had to get through it.
0: So, now did you? Was it like Top Gun? Did you guys sing like "You've Lost That Love and Feeling" and stuff? Was it like really as cinematic as some of those Navy uh, aviator movies look?
2: Oh, you could say that. <laughs> 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 and we had a lot of civilians that would come down here, but mostly I would say on Fridays and Saturday nights you'd see a lot of sailors in there because the reserves would come in on the weekend, and instead of driving into town, all I had to do was walk across the street to the In Crowd, and they'd be partying there till it closed down.
0: That's great. Now, the, um, you mentioned the driving up to the front gate, and the, this radio station where I'm broadcasting from tonight, we're in that gate structure, and, and we're up uh-huh. on the second floor. Well, I think it's the second floor. And I've been told, my, the station manager wanted me to ask you specifically what this space was used for. We've been told it was a sergeant-at-arms quarters or sergeant-at-arms office or something. Does that ring a bell at all for you?
2: Yes, sergeant-at-arms. The, uh, the, uh, the base security guys had an office up there in that section of the building. In fact, right inside the gate to the right was the office for you to check in. But there's a set of stairs that went up. Uh, I can't recall where the stairs were that got up to that area. But it was a Master at Arms. Uh, that was a hangout.
0: Okay. Now, in in you know, the, I'm in my early 50s. I don't remember. I vaguely. I lived in Kirkland across the lake. I vaguely remember seeing the base looking more active than it has been for the last 50 years or so. Um, in 1968, 1969... Does it have sort of a, like a feel, of like a bustling place? Is it quiet? Are there, how often are planes coming and going? Can it give me a sense of what the atmosphere of like? Did it really feel like it was a real full-fledged Navy base, or did it feel kind of like like small and kind of out of the way?
2: Uh, I think my feeling, my feeling was uh, being up and working every single day and fixing aircraft that were going out and flying, not as often during the week as on the weekends. Every weekend was hustle and bustle.
0: Got it. Because okay. the
2: reserves were coming in every single weekend of the month. They'd come in on Friday night. They'd take off in planes. Our C-54s would fly up to Idaho to pick up reserves and bring them to Sandpoint for the weekend. And then on Sunday nights, take them back to Idaho or Nevada or someplace uh, so that they could get these guys from out of the area into the reserves and get them some drilling time. So, huh. yeah, it was it was pretty busy. Uh, and, of course, during the week, all, we spent all week fixing those broke airplanes. They broke during the weekend.
0: And so what kinds of things would you fix? What would be the sort of stuff you'd be working on you know, on a kind of aircraft that were here then? Uh,
2: it could be jets. It could be uh, jet engines on the P-2. The P-2s were dual prop plus a jet on the outside of the props on the outside. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So we would have jet start engine problems or generator problems or P-2 uh, instrument problems, uh, engine problems, uh, tires needing to be changed, or sh- troubleshooting a hydraulic system that had failed. Hmm. Uh, lots of electrical system. Almost every system on these planes has a, an electrical component, so when the mechanics or the hydraulics guys couldn't figure something out, they'd call the electrician. We'd go out and troubleshoot it down and tell them what to change.
0: So. And you said you lived in the barracks. What were the barracks like here? <laughs> pretty cool
2: we had uh unusual for navy barracks when i left alameda i was living in barracks and there were like uh 30 bunks on each side each side of the barracks all running down one long alleyway and big lockers in between them. And that's where we all stayed. So you could hear a cacophony of snores at night from (laughs) up and down the barracks. It's crazy. (laughs) But when I got up to uh, Sand Point, it was nice. They had uh, two bunk bedrooms. Uh, Some had four bunks in them uh, with lockers. And it was pretty cool. It was up on the second floor. We had uh, attic storage places up there where we could keep our personal stuff. It was a a key, key storage area. And uh, each, each one had an individual one of those. It was kind
0: of cool. And what was the the food like?
2: uh, The food in the chow hall, I tried not to eat there too often. (laughs) Most people try not to do in the chow hall. (laughs) Uh, It's gotten better over the years, but back in those days, it was uh, instant eggs and that kind of stuff, Uh, you know, bologna, spices uh, on bread. (laughs) Pretty bad. But the clubs clubs did well. They had... uh, tater tots and chicken fries and that kind
0: of stuff. <laughs> yeah, because, in, of course, a Navy fights on its stomach or repairs planes on its stomach, right? Um, so when the in-crowd tavern, when, when that felt like that was too small of a playpen, um, did you ever like go to downtown Seattle for like where the real action was, or did you get out and around the area much?
2: Oh, we got, we got out quite a bit around the area. It would be downtown Seattle over in the U District, uh, a lot of cool taverns over there. The uh, the big hotel down there. It was a big hotel down in town. I'm trying to remember the name of it. They had a
0: The Olympic Hotel?
2: Could was the Olympic. And in fact they had a, a, a lady down there who was English that would sing body songs <laughs> in the bar. And we would drink yards of ale in that bar. I can remember that quite well. <laughs> and the body song she sang, she had a piano player there. And she would just go off, and it, she had the crowd roared by the end of the night. She was just, she had a re- pretty silly, dirty mouth, I think.
0: Boy, I wonder who that was. Because there, there, there was a cabaret performer down in the Pike Place Market who was there for decades. I'm blanking on what her name was, but she only went away like 25 years ago, like in the 90s, uh, I think. I'm blanking on what her I, name it, was.
2: It was great fun. We did that. We'd go down to Olympia. We'd be up uh, night skiing at Snoqualmie. We'd be night skiing at uh, Stevens. Hmm. Uh, and then, of course, after the skiing, we'd be down at the pub, right there at the inn crowd on the way home. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, well, I mean, were you enough of a regular at the inn crowd? where they like you'd walk in and they would say, "Oh, here comes Dan." Hey, Dan, was it was like a, were you like a regular there?
2: Uh, kind of. Yeah. For the guys that knew me, you know, they, they'd all be sitting. They'd see me walk in. Yeah, I could go in there and say I was a fairly regular. But oh. uh, we were moving around a lot in those days, like you say, I was downtown. I was up in uh, Payne Field. I was uh, up in Kirkland, uh, over uh, just about all over the area. It was—it was new to me. It was new country. It was like I was thrilled with the country, and I was thrilled with the energy, and I was thrilled with the base because it was just like just had all this energy.
0: Yeah. Well, was there much like connection or interplay with the, like the the residential neighborhood that's immediately I guess west of the base and north and south of the base?
2: Uh, Not that I recall. I uh, I knew there were people down on the south end uh, that probably complained of the droning of the engines on approach, uh, planes huh. coming on approach, and uh, and also maybe the takeoff as it got closer to Kirkland uh, and uh, places along the uh, lake as we took off or landed. I, I think people... Probably complained to the city, but the Navy was the Navy. The DOD says it's an active base. This is what we're doing. and
0: Yeah. And the I way think, it goes. Yeah, I think way the base goes. predated most of those homes, I think, or the, the airfield certainly predated most of the homes in the neighborhood. Now, one of the things oh. you, you mentioned in the email was just about doing plane watch duty in a boat off the end of the runway. What was that all about?
2: Well, you know, down in the early days, it was a seaplane ramp down there. Uh, because the seaplanes were the early planes that really were setting up the base for the future. And next to where the seaplane ramp was down there, the Navy built a boathouse and stationed about two or three 32 foot, uh, what they call crash boats. And uh, when we had duty, we would occasionally, and the boathouse is manned by regular active duty bosom mates. They're mm-hmm. the ones that ran the boats. Uh, they were the ones who provided uh, crash duty and what that meant was whenever there was a flight taken off that would carry passengers like on a c-47 or a c-54 or maybe a, a marine box car c-119 where they had a load of passengers the call would go out to the boathouse to launch the crash boat and so whoever was on duty besides the bosa mates who ran the boat would jump aboard the boat and their purpose was to go out on the end of the runway, and the at the end that was where the plane was coming in. The when when it launched and it rose into the air, the boat would be right there just in case something happened and the plane crashed into the lake. That boat would be there on the point to do what it could to provide immediate uh, uh,
0: services. Got it. Okay,
2: picking up survivors mm-hmm. or something like that. Now, uh, and that also includes plane. Uh, Planes taking off and planes landing. So if there was a plane coming in with uh, a bunch of reservists on it, well, the crash boat was out at the end of the lake there on the north side of the runway, uh, and it would stay there until everything was done, and then it'd go back to the boathouse. Uh, hmm. And uh, that was a that was a great crew down there. I got to tell you, that was a bunch of roughshod uh, mates down there, but they were a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> Sounds a little bit like D-Day almost. <laughs> oh my
2: goodness, just like D-Day. <laughs>
0: Now um, we're just about out of time here, but I really I thank you for coming on the show. Um, this is we're talking to Dan Wall. He's a Navy veteran. He was here at Sandpoint more than fifty years ago. Um, two questions for you. Um, two final questions. One is: um, So you were here when word came that the activities here at Sandpoint were going to be moved up to Whidbey Island and this place was going to be shut down? Is that is that true? Am I overstating that? Or
2: no, you're exactly on. I was there from '68 till closing, and I helped. Moved all the aircraft up to Whidbey Island, and I became a plank owner for VP-69, uh, the SP-2, now P-8 squadron up at Whidbey Island, still there, still running. And, uh, in fact, I just attended our uh, 52nd reunion from being an original member of the squadron. Are,
0: are the P-8s at the modified 737 that does the, um, it's like what used to P-3 Orions used to do, like the Sona buoys okay. and that kind of thing?
2: That, that is correct.
0: Got it. Okay, okay. And so was there, um, when that news came that it was going to be, things were going to be shut down here, was there a, I mean, how did that feel? Was it? Was there this, because it's, I feel very <laughs> sentimental about it. I like the notion of an it, active Navy base sounds pretty cool. But I, at the time, was it just sort of just a matter of just kind of business as usual kind of thing?
2: No, no, it was, it was rough. I, I took it almost personally. In fact, I was so upset <laughs> about it. I wrote a letter to Strom Thurmond <laughs> and got an answer back from there. Every once in a while, I look at that letter that he answered back, and he says, Right now, Mr. Mr. Wall called me Mr. Wall. I was just uh, E6 at the time. And he says, yeah. Mr. Wall, he says, I appreciate you writing me, if I remember part of the letter. He says, I've not heard for sure any news about the base closing. He says, But I'm sure that that's got to be incorrect. I've got the letter saying.
0: Wow, that's a collector's and item. June, <laughs>
2: and by June, we're up at Whidbey Island by <laughs> September. The new squadron formed,
0: so. Well, thank you, Senator Thurman. Um, yeah, last no, question. Last, last question. Now, in that, in hanging out over at the In Crowd, there, what were the Seattle? What were the the, the single women you were meeting from Seattle? Who were actual local gals? What were It's a family radio show, of course. What were those Seattle single gals like you were meeting back in the late sixties?
2: They were wonderful.
0: Full stop. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I have my spouse sitting here next to me. <laughs> no, she. I met her there in Seattle. They warned me in Alameda before I went to Washington, you're going to get married if you go out there. I said, no, no, I'll be just fine. Well, three years later, after I got up there, uh, we got married at Whidbey Island, and we've been together ever since, 52, 53 years.
0: Wonderful. Well, Dan Wall, mm-hmm. thanks for your service. Um, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Um, there's a history project going on here. I hope, um, if it's okay, I wouldn't mind giving your name and contact info to um, some people who are doing some work on the history of, of the base here for kind of filling out the, some of the holes in the story about what the base was like for walking tours and that sort of thing. Is it okay if I do that? Sure, you could do that. Terrific. All right, Dan Wall, thank you very much for joining us here on Cascade of History, and really appreciated talking to you. Have a good night, sir. You too. Thanks so much. That's Dan Wall joining us on Cascade of History. Uh, We'll be right back after this.
3: They called the settlement New Market, what is now Tumwater. And it began to grow and thrive and prosper as did the whole area. And in the east, they began to hear stories of the lands of the great northwest, exciting and full of promise. And many more with vision and courage began to move westward, by land on the route of the Overland Trail, and by sea, too, around Cape Horn. Board the brig, O. C. Raymond, just around the horn, headed north. The O.C. Raymond is under the command of Captain Nathaniel Crosby. We're in the captain's quarters, and from the deck we can hear the voice of the first mate singing a sea chanty. And she smiled up at me. She had pearls in her hair, and she smiled up at me. She had pearls in her hair. Twas a vision to see. The made of Bella Cole, Cole. Captain Nathaniel Crosby hair, listens, frowns, mutters, and, and then rushes up the companionway to the deck. Hair, and Mr. Ramsey. My... Uh, aye, aye, sir. Will you trim the mainsail? We'll never make Puget Sound this year if you keep this ship wallowing like a pig in the mud. Uh, aye, aye, sir. Uh, trim the mainsail and be quick with it. The mainsail. And Mr. Ramsey. Uh, the... Aye, aye, sir. I'm glad to hear you sing. But will you kindly sing a bit more to the pitch? I like a song myself, you know, but huh, you like to bust in the tune clear out of me head. Uh, I, I, I. She had pearls in her hair T'was a vision to see The mermaid made of bellicoco Ah, oh, yes, singing is good for the soul. Mm-hmm. She had pearls in her hair, Mr. and she's... Mr. Uh, Ramsey...
1: Little pine tree, you water it good, little pine tree, you water it good. Little pine tree will grow so high, clear up in the heavens
3: till he reaches the sky. From the 50s on, the big development of the Northwest began. Lumber, wood pipe, furniture, fishing, tanning. And the famous Crosby flour mill at Tumwater was one of the first big industries in this new industrial metropolis of the pacific northwest and the light that shone in the eyes of those first few at independence missouri and the vision of the new england sailors when they spoke of the west became a reality
0: wow that was episode six of the end of the oregon trail did you you happen to recognize the special guests that they were able to rope in actually bing crosby um portraying his ancestor captain crosby who was here in the 19th century That was quite a surprise. Anyway, um, we'll have, I think it's the final episode, episode number seven. We're going to have that hopefully next week if we can get to it. Um, Coming up in the second half of the show, we're going to be joined by Allison Brooks, the State Historic Preservation Officer for Washington. And then Ding Dong the History Clown is going to be stopping by too. But before we get to that, we have our very special guest, um, our very special roving correspondent. And uh, I think you all know who he is, but uh, let's let's play his welcoming music.
3: Bill, and as you ready, Because we go. We're going to tear you down. <laughs>
0: Are you there, Ken Zick? Are you there, Ken Zick? I'm here. Can you hear me right? Yes, let me turn down your annoying, irritating, welcoming music. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's great. Fantastic.
4: I love it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's been a while. We haven't, we haven't had you on the show recently because there hasn't been any bad news from any uh, local establishments. <laughs> No uh, bowling alleys or roller rinks or skating rinks or movie theaters or anything. <laughs> Drive-ins being torn down or, or threatened. But uh, when I spoke with you a couple days ago, we decided that it was a good time to go and visit Seattle High School Memorial Stadium, which is down at Seattle Center. It's marking its 75th birthday here in about two weeks. I doubt anybody's doing anything to formally mark its 75th anniversary. But I'm glad you can be there. What, first of all, for someone who might not know what we're talking about, can you paint a little picture of, of where you are and, and what the place looks like?
4: Sure, I'm uh, It's on the uh, east side of the Seattle Center. Like I can just barely crane my neck and see the Climate Pledge Arena sign through the uh, trees at the end of it. And it's a uh, uh, you know, standard football stadium size, you know, covered bleachers on either side and in end zones and uprights. Um, and it's got the it's got the uh, memorial wall on the on the entrance uh, parking lot side. Um, and it's got and actually tonight they've got flag football going on. So I'm watching uh, watching at least a. Uh, Two four teams playing right now. Some teams flag football. You probably hear, I don't know if you can hear the whistles in the background or not.
0: But I a... I can actually. That I think we might be the only station carrying live flag football anywhere in the <laughs> world at this point. And I love that we can do that on Space One Hundred One FM. Thanks to your assistance like this. So, whoa! <laughs> yeah. Something's going on. Is that is that the crowd or is that the?
4: <laughs> no, I think. I think I think I am the crowd tonight. Okay. But that was, there was a touchdown down at the end of the
0: field. God, the ambient noise is the highlight of all of your report. I mean, I like <laughs> I like the substance of the things that you tell us in your reports, but I especially like the ambient noise. So so kudos to, for that. Great. Um, now, I saw you posted some photos on the Cascade of History Facebook page, which if people haven't liked that or followed that or joined that or whatever you do to that to that thing nowadays, they should, because that's where we get information about upcoming shows and things. You were actually down at Memorial Stadium on Friday, on actually Veterans Day. I assume there was probably a parade and thousands of people gathered there <laughs> to, to pay tribute to the 800 or so Seattle School District alums who made the ultimate sacrifice in World War II. Um, well, a
4: little, a little less than that. There was actually a... Uh, uh, football game. O'Day was playing a peninsula uh, that day, so there was a lot of O'Day supporters getting ready for the game to start. And um, the parking lot was full. There were a lot of people down there, but not a not a ton of interest in the in the memorial wall, as far as I could tell.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, my whole soapbox about this, and in case you're just joining us, we're talking to Ken Zick. He's our live roving correspondent here on Cascade of History. We're the only live radio show about news and stories focused on Pacific Northwest history. Ken Zick's down at Seattle High School Memorial Stadium. My soapbox about that is the high school stadium is the memorial, right? Um, When they built that stadium in 1947, it was built expressly to honor the 800 or so students from Seattle Public Schools who had died in World War II and then about 5 years later they put in that memorial wall with all the names and you joined me i think it was maybe 4 or 5 years ago we did a facebook live broadcast of reading all the names on the wall it took us about 45 did minutes to get through that list of names and it was it was it was it was more moving than I thought it was going to be, just the yep, sheer volume yep. of the names and, the, you know, they're alphabetized and the the mixture of names of different ethnicities and different, you know, nationalities and or maybe not nationalities. I'm sure they're all American citizens, but <laughs> it was just a, it was it was such a moving experience. And then if you read the newspaper articles from uh, November of 1947, they all talk about how, you know, this field and this building is being dedicated to 800 students who will never get to enjoy it. You know, and let's, let's, yep. but, the, but other they're, they're, Fellow students will play games here and, and compete and in there in honor of their memory. And so it irks me that the Seattle School District wants to tear that building down and replace it with some new stadium. And they say the memorial wall is the actual memorial, but no, the stadium is the memorial. So I'm not done sort of like kind of pushing this agenda that I have. And it's not a hidden agenda. I just think it's it's the stadium. That was that. It's like a tombstone. The whole stadium yeah. is, is a is a monument to those kids, all kids, pretty much who gave their lives in, in World War II, who went to Seattle Public Schools. So, we'll see. I think they have to raise a lot of money, and before they do, tear that down and build something new. And my fear would be that they'll they will build something new, and they'll get a naming sponsor, and it'll be called the you know blank company name here stadium, yeah. and the whole memorial part will just be forgotten, and that makes me yeah. sad. So that would yeah,
4: that'd be another another uh, uh, part of Washington, uh, actually, city of Seattle legacy you know, gone to, gone to, uh, developers. Yeah. Accepting.
0: And, and the idea that the stadium is the memorial is cool too. Cause that's why it's like when people are sitting in the seats or kids are playing on the field, they're actually, they're honoring those war dead, not just standing in front of a wall with some names on it. Not that that's yep. unimportant, but I think the whole package is the memorial. So we'll, 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 we'll be coming back to that now. Um, we're going to have you out there. I'm not sure where we're going to send you next week or the week after that. But I think, you've, and you've got some travel ahead, so we'll, we'll figure all this out. But I really appreciate having you out there as our roving correspondent, bringing those the live sounds of the Flag football game on a Sunday night from Seattle on November 13th, 2022. That's that's radio history right there.
4: Yep. yep yeah. Happy to be here. Hey. Hey. I I wanted to see if you remembered. I think in in '96 we saw Tiny Tim play a concert in Memorial Stadium. As, as part of Bumbershoot,
0: we did. Yeah,
4: I, I, think we, I think we, yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, Memorial <laughs> Stadium has been a has hosted many, many concerts from like the '70s on up. Yeah. And
5: it's like
4: ever since Memorial Stadium started, so I was looking at the roster and a bunch of like local music. And so I mean, like not only not only sports and young people getting together, but getting together for for like music and you know just getting together and enjoying enjoying like being alive. I think is is a really good good way to think about that. Memorial Stadium is a way to. Honor those uh, students who, who absolutely,
0: yeah, a multi-purpose, a true multi-purpose facility, and a and a beautiful piece of late 40s World War II architect, or excuse me, post World War II architecture. Also, yep. the site in 1948, Thanksgiving Day, oh. November 25th, of the very first TV broadcast in Seattle history of a, of a right. football game, West Seattle versus Wenatchee, right there on that very field, built in honor of those those war dead from Seattle Public Schools. So, yep. anyway, Ken Zick, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we'll. Um, have a safe drive home. We'll look forward to getting together sometime in the next week or two for another visit to some historic place, endangered or threatened, around the Pacific Northwest.
4: My pleasure. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks, Ken. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Ken Zick. He's our roving correspondent here on Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. Um Allison Brooks will be joining us in a moment, and then we'll be getting a, a quick visit from uh, Ding Dong the History Clown. So before we do that, though, let's hear this. To learn more about Space 101.1, visit our website at space101fm.org. Once you're there, you can listen to the live stream and share it with your friends far and wide. See a program calendar. Check out the real-time playlist or even donate to our non-profit all-volunteer radio station, Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park and streaming live at space101fm.org.
1: Come aboard! It's time for more
0: Cascade of History with Felix Bonnell. This is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bonnell, and joining us now is Allison Brooks. Allison, can you hear me?
5: Yes, I can
0: hear you. Oh, thank you so much for taking time on a Sunday night. It's uh, really... I know it's... I always say this. It's a very inconvenient time for our guests. It is. But, <laughs> No, sure you're not supposed is. to. You're not supposed to say that. You're no, um, no but it's it's a great time to be uh, for our audience to listen to people who are doing interesting stuff and working to preserve and share Northwest history. It's really it's it's a perfect I couldn't think of a better time of week. I'd love to be sitting at home listening to this show right now. <laughs> anyway, um so you're the you're the State Historic Preservation Officer, correct?
5: Yes, I am. And how
0: long have you been in that position?
5: In January, uh, I'll be starting my 23rd year.
0: And what first drew you to working in historic preservation?
5: Well, actually, I'm a professional archaeologist by training. So it's sort of a long-winded story.
0: (laughs) That's why we're here. (laughs) Um,
5: (laughs) People ask me why I became an archaeologist. So I will tell you the story is my mother's British, and we were in England, in Devon, when I was seven years old, and we passed an archaeological dig... And I went up to talk to, or probably were 20-year-olds, but of course when you're seven everybody looks like they're, you know, (laughs) senior citizens. And I said, what are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for King Arthur's Round Table. Wow. And then they gave me a couple of pieces of pottery and a tooth. (laughs) And that was it. And then I went on, um, I thought for a while maybe I wanted to be a biblical archaeologist, but in the 70s and 80s the Middle East wasn't. Yeah, it was a little hard for women, and then um, yeah. then I did a master's degree on the Saratoga Battlefield in Troy, New York, well, in Upstate New York. Wow! And then ended up working on uh, gold rush sites. And what happened was I got hired by the uh, Black Hills National Forest in South Dakota to work on gold mining sites, and then got hired by. Uh, the state of South Dakota to be their uh, what's called the Review Archaeologist, their State Historic Preservation Office Archaeologist, Uh, then got hired by Minnesota DOT to do archaeological work for them and then ended up over here as the State Historic Preservation Officer.
0: Now for someone who doesn't know what a State Historic Preservation Officer is or does, what's what's the short version of of what that job entails?
5: So um, it's a really interesting position because it's the only one of its kind that's mandated in federal law. So the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 actually mandated that every governor had to appoint what's called a State Historic Preservation Officer. And that State Historic Preservation Officer is responsible for looking at all federal undertakings in the state to determine their impacts on cultural resources and cultural resources are historic buildings historic structures archaeological sites or cultural sites and then the SHIPO is also as we're known as is supposed to help determine what places in the state should be listed on the national register of historic places um, we also have a tax credit program so a, it's called a historic preservation tax credit program it was actually used on the rehabilitation on Key Arena oh. to become Climate Pledge Arena. The project couldn't have happened without the Federal um, Historic Preservation Income Tax Credit. So we run that program. Hmm. And then we give out grants to local historic preservation commissions. The majority of our workload is really those federal reviews. They yeah. take up a lot of time. And then on the state level, my job is responsible for archaeological permitting, um, we have the state physical anthropologist and a human remains lab <clears throat> where we do all the repatriations to the tribes. Or if human remains are non tribal, we try to determine um, where those should go as well. So we have a human remains lab for non crime scene human remains. Hmm. Um, And so we do, and then we also have a website that we have up of historic places in Washington State that we keep track of. So we do a variety of things.
0: Oh, that's that database, that wizard? Yeah, that's wizard, Uh, exactly. Yeah, the
5: wizard database. That's really the most, uh, the largest of its kind in the United States.
0: So, oh, so you're so the state of Washington's wizard database. That's so that is does, very unique. Does, so we
5: started it in 1999, building it in 1999 before anybody thought of doing anything like it.
0: That's cool.
5: So ours is considered the Cadillac, as people other people call it, um, of all the GIS sites, cultural resource GIS sites around the United States. That's because neat. We we built it little by little by little by little. <clears throat> And, and we it, keep modifying it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's, a, it's like, iterative. I think there's new material. When right. some, something's uncovered, you can easily, or your staff can yes. add stuff to it that kind Every of fleshes day. out the record. See, that's that's awesome. Every day. And it's totally accessible by the public, right?
5: Well, just the historic building side. The archaeological sites are not allowed to be accessed by the public.
0: Because those should be protected, because there isn't any way because to care for them. Yeah, yeah so, yeah.
5: so archaeological sites and... Um, And cultural sites and sacred sites are behind a firewall. Um, The other program we have that I suppose I should have mentioned, because you did a piece on it, is cemeteries. So we also have a care and maintenance program for cemeteries. Uh, Nonprofits can apply to us for what's called care and maintenance, and then we certify them to take care of historic or abandoned cemeteries.
0: What's the website address if people want to look at the historic building stuff on Wizard? Um,
5: You just find it... gov.
0: Got it. yeah, it is a it is a super super helpful site for any kind of research like that. And is um I mean, I'm sure you talked to your colleagues in Idaho and Oregon and I don't know if you talk to people in British Columbia because it's a whole different, you know, obviously different federal government up there, but is is Washington, where do we fit in? Are we sort of are there unique challenges here? Are we sort of having easier than Idaho or Oregon or kind of where to, where no, do we fit I in would with the say Northwest? Our
5: challenges are more western US versus eastern US. How so? So the well, the biggest challenges a lot of my counterparts and I are facing now are balancing all these renewable energy projects with uh, tribal, cultural, and sacred places, because a lot of the areas where uh, companies, developers want to put solar and wind are also the same places that are important to our indigenous partners. And this is happening all around the West, Um, and that's pretty unique. I know the East Coast has wind farms, which also sometimes has impacts to local area tribes as well. But I think the balance is more complicated here out West. And, of course, then you also have lithium mining for the materials needed for a lot of these renewable energy projects. So uh, myself and my counterparts are trying to find a path forward of balance between the two. Huh. So that's been pretty unique. And, you know, it's just not surprising because, you know, the West has vast landscape areas. Yeah,
0: but then it seems like there's the, those kinds of things, like especially the windmills, you get into the notion of um, viewscapes.
5: Yeah, it's, it's visual effects, it's noise effects, it's construction in, impacts, and I think people are very aware that these have impacts to natural resources, but there's impacts to cultural resources, too.
0: Yeah, like that uh, driving on I-90 back and forth across the state. I have family in Spokane that coming either coming west as you come down into uh, toward Vantage uh, or go up the backside of that hill on the, the the west side of the Columbia as you, after you cross Advantage there. There's just all those windmills around, and yeah. it completely changes the look of that area yeah. compared to, say, I don't know, 30 years ago. I don't know how long the, all those windmills went in there.
5: Oh, I don't uh, think it's been way less than 30 is years. It, is it more recent than that? Yeah, yeah, yeah much yeah. more recently. And the other uh, place you see the vast change to the landscape, too, is on I-84.
0: Which is down, that's right, where it cuts down yeah, from uh, Ellensburg down River. to Yakima. When, yeah,
5: Yeah. when you, when, no, not, not, is, no, isn't I-84? Oh, oh, it's 80,
0: no, you're right, you're 84, yeah, yeah. 84, I yeah, so yeah. if
5: you go along the Columbia River along the Oregon side, both along the Washington shoreline and the Oregon shoreline, you really see um, the big transmission lines, the big, yeah. you know, wind farms. So, but, you know, everything's a trade-off, right? Yeah. and And that's the hard part, is how do you balance the need for energy, which is going to be continuous, and when the need for renewable energy that's not, you know, fossil fuels, and at the same time, balance natural and cultural resources in the Viewscape. It's not easy. I don't have any solutions. I just do the best I can.
0: One thing I've also noticed with the Viewscape is, like, in urban areas in particular, like around the King Street Station in downtown Seattle, it's almost getting not completely boxed in, but it used to be sort of standing on its own. You could sort of see it from almost every angle, and now it's just sort of getting more and more kind of crowded by these fairly tall buildings. Um, It it seems like with social media, with, I don't know, maybe it's just uh, civilization progressing, historic preservation seems much more mainstream than it did when I was first paying attention about, I don't know, about 30 years ago.
5: So historic preservation 30 years ago I think was still focused on <clears throat> the great—I don't know if you want to call it—the great, the big moments of, in history, the big mansions, the big architectural buildings—and we've really moved on in the past ten or fifteen years to diversify what's important. So, our agency, the Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, uh, I guess almost about fifteen years, twelve to fifteen years ago now, were, was given funding to do two Latino studies, uh, two studies of Latino heritage. And we did one in the Yakima Valley, and then we did one in Seattle. And then we have open studies going. And these were grants given to us by the National Park Service, by Mm -hmm, the way. mm -hmm. Then we're doing studies of Filipino-American history. That's open and being conducted. We're doing one on the Chinese exclusion period, and we're doing one on black heritage. These are all grants that were given to us by the National Park Service on top of that, the legislature gave us funding this year to look at sites of cultural importance, not necessarily historic, cultural importance to diverse and marginalized communities in Seattle. So we're again we're working with you know LGBTQ, the Black community, the Jewish community, the Asian American communities, you know, and and their you know the Asian American community isn't one community, right? All the components of the Asian American community, yeah, Um, and any diverse and marginalized community we can think of, and we're collecting data on sites of cultural importance, no matter what the time period to those communities, and then we're going to map those on our GIS platform so that land use and transportation planners have more awareness about sites of cultural significance people.
0: See, that's great because I, you know, I've said before on this show, I sort of just, I just covet the stories. And the, I mean, the more stories that can be uncovered, the more interesting this area is, the more I feel like when people know about the stories of their neighborhoods, their cities, their their regions, right. they love their area, but they take better care of everything.
5: <laughs> yeah. So uh, the twist, I would say from 30 years ago to now is 30 years ago, you had professionals deciding what was important to people and now the work that we're doing is saying to these communities and groups what's important to you, you tell us. Yeah. Instead of us telling you.
0: And, and, and that Latino survey in particular, I remember I read about, I think I did a story for the other station I worked for about that barbershop in South Seattle, Baron's or Barron's barbershop, where it was the kind of the community crossroads for all sorts right. of organizations and and it just was just not an, are it,
5: places that you have to ask the community about because the the, the regular historian, architectural historian walking by isn't going to know that social history. Yeah. So so what was missing from preservation really was social history, what you're talking about, the story. So we've really moved into that area to say, all right, it's enough of us trying to figure out what's important. You tell us because it's more important that we hear from you than we talk to ourselves.
0: And it seems like this this. These kinds of initiatives in historic preservation obviously predate the last couple of years and the sort of the uh, post George Floyd, post pandemic, um, kind well, of yes focus. Well, yes
5: no. So about 15 years ago, or so, 12 years ago, the National Park Service came. and This was before George, the George Floyd incident, um, came up with what's called underrepresented community grants, and they are grants. They're competitive and our office was well, applied for them all the time. And because we were, had started working with the area's Latino community on a Latino her- heritage project with high schoolers, we decided to apply for these grants. <clears throat> so the Park Service was already starting down this road and letting states apply for these studies. And same thing with, you know, again, we applied for Filipino-American work, the Black Heritage work, Um so it was going on. I just doesn't, I'm not sure it was as expansive as it is now. And then the other thing that changed was not just the recognition that we all needed to do a better job. And we've been working closely with the state's uh, Native American community all this time as well. Mm-hmm. But just the rec- recognition that we needed to broaden our horizons Which, much more than we had previously.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's and that's great. I mean, that's again, that's the, that notion of, just telling all the stories, collecting all the data at the at the very least. That surveying and knowing at least where things are, where where these spots are that otherwise wouldn't get, you know, wouldn't get recorded. Right. That's a point huge first step. Is
5: also mapping, mapping them because it's not just the stories behind them, but for land use and transportation planners, they need to know where they are and they're designing things. And really, for them, it's more. Just tell me where they are, right? Give me the points on the map. Tell me what to avoid. Yeah. And so the mapping piece is crucial to saving these places.
0: Yeah, and it seems like, I mean, I don't have really any experience outside of the Seattle area or Washington State in terms of um, preservation organizations. It seems like there's a fairly I don't know, robust ecology of groups like you know, Historic Seattle and in Seattle, Washington Trust working statewide. Yes,
5: we are very fortunate in this state that the relationship between our agency, the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation, Historic Seattle, is um and local preservation commissions is very close and it's not like that in other states we work hand in hand together yeah it's not competitive it we all are focused on the same goal and it's a great relationship here it's not like that in every state and i don't understand it because i kind (laughs) of think you know what we do is so esoteric and it's sometimes it's really hard to get people to care about what we do, that, you know, fighting internally makes no sense to me. Like, why wouldn't you get along? Yeah. We have I, a hard enough time getting our voice heard as it is to not get along just makes it worse. So so yeah. I feel very fortunate that we're working in a state where we work very collaboratively on, on all projects. Right on. And well, the Maritime Heritage Area that we have in this state is a, is a perfect example of that. Um Maritime, the Maritime Washington National Heritage Area that we have was started by our agency. Uh, We had to do a strategic plan, um, um, not a strategic plan, we had to do a feasibility study. Sorry, it is Sunday night. We had to do (laughs) do the feasibility study for the National Park Service. So our agency took the lead on the feasibility study, and I had to go talk to all the port commissions and local museums and, also county commissioners about getting support for becoming a national heritage area and it took us ten years because it has to be an act of Congress and that's we right. just got that designation a few years ago with the Great Americas Outdoors Act and then the and then we basically lobbed it over the net to the Washington Trust for Historic Preservation they are now the managing organization of the heritage area
0: and so, yeah so I'm there. we
5: started it and now they have it so See, that's again great. it was. Yeah. It wasn't a competition. It was designed that way.
0: Yeah. I'm going to reach out to them, and that's going to be the topic of an upcoming show for sure, that Maritime Heritage Area as well as the um, Mountains of Sound Greenway Heritage Area and stuff. So, Allison Brooks, thank you for joining us on a Sunday evening. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's always nice to talk to you. if you have other story ideas, feel free to reach out, and we'll definitely have you and other members of your staff back on the future here on Cascade oh, wait, of History. Oh, I do cause... have
5: one addition for you Uh-oh. for 30 seconds. Uh-oh, that's right, because you did your story on the pet cemetery. So one thing I didn't tell you was the legislature realizing that the laws are all over the place, which you brought up, <laughs> uh, we're actually doing a study at this moment on looking at the current cemetery laws and where they need to be revised. You're welcome. <laughs> so, well, no, that came in before your story. In fairness, no, that wasn't your story
0: that did I'm that. I'm just but, kidding. But I'll
5: just say just that, um, that, you know, you asked for follow-up. So that's something All you right. want to see where that one goes. Because right on. I did hear your story All earlier.
0: So. Allison Brooks, thank you so much. Okay. Have a good evening. Nice, Thanks for joining right. us on you Cascade too. of History. Good night. Okay. All right, well, we've run out of time to have uh, Ding Dong the History Clown on, so we'll have to invite him back for a later show. I'm Felix of This Cascade of History. We're live from Space 101.1 FM here in Seattle and streaming live at Space101FM.org. We're here every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time. We'll see you next week.
1: That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it! Watch it! That's a slippery spot there. Ooh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bernal.